Hello, flutists. I have known the team at Flute Specialists for many years, and I'm happy to have them sponsor this Porter Flute Pod episode, Taking the Fear Out of Auxiliary Instruments. They carry all my CDs, DVDs, and sheet music arrangements. You can check out their Flute Espresso interview series. It's available on Facebook and YouTube, and I was recently featured as their guest. Flute Specialists is known nationally for their large inventory of new and used flutes, piccolos, alto flutes, bass flutes, head joints, and much more. You can easily request a free in-home trial through their website, by phone, or by email. You'll receive a one-on-one consultation with their friendly staff of flutists. They offer free warranties on all purchases, interest-free financing, and competitive pricing. They carry many diverse brands of all levels, including Burkhardt and Homig Piccolos. In addition to instruments, they have a large selection of sheet music and accessories for all your flute needs. Visit www.flutespecialists.com and use the code PORTERFLUTE at checkout for 15% off your sheet music purchase. Thanks, Flute Specialists. Make sure you follow them on social media at Flute Specialists. Hi, I'm Amy Porter. Some of you know me as a flutist and a classical musician, others as a professor, and some of you know me as a publisher and arranger. I'm a stepmom, I'm a business owner, and I'm the founder of a couple of nonprofits. And this is my podcast. My core mission as an entrepreneur is to appreciate what I have around me. And then I try and see as clearly as possible how I can help. So let's talk, let's share information, let's laugh and sometimes cry over the things that we have to work through in life and in music, in business and family and relationships. Come on into my Porter Flute pod. Welcome to Porter Flute Pod. It's season two, episode 16, and we're talking about the personal journeys we take to learning the piccolo, as well as the alto and the bass flute. We call them auxiliary instruments, and we're helping you learn them without fear or consequence, helping to embrace that inner voice of a challenge beyond the C flute. Co-producing the podcast with me is Alan J. Tomasetti and Justine Sedke, and our guests sharing their experiences are Erica Peel, piccoloist in the Philadelphia Orchestra, and Cynthia Myers, piccoloist in the Boston Symphony. I went to the vault and found the piece that I chose to play on piccolo, Lowell Lieberman's Eight Pieces. This is number five. Welcome to Porterflu Pod. We're so glad you're here. For me, it began with the fife. I have memories of learning the fife alongside the flute and then the fife comfortably leading me into the piccolo. It was commonplace in the 1970s to have a flute and a piccolo and a fife in your hands. It was music. It was music all the time on every instrument you could get your hands on. And then piano kind of went alongside the flute. And of course, everyone in my world also had a voice. So singing came easily. 
And between all those voices I could use to play music, my musical voice became strong and resilient and bold. Being rotated in the youth orchestra of Greater Philadelphia between playing flute and piccolo was a great teacher for me. When it came time to learn the alto flute, to be exposed to it, it came naturally. And like an old friend or perhaps a beloved grandparent, it was a lower, wiser voice that had wisdom to extol. And I was listening. I gravitated much more to the alto flute. And by the time I auditioned for the Atlanta Symphony, I was happy to let them know I could play all the instruments. At 26 years old, I was appointed associate principal, a role that I took to heart. And I played every role imaginable for the next eight years. You can see me on the Christmas with Robert Shaw on PBS playing the piccolo. And I've recorded all the major orchestral alto flute works. Holst's The Planet, The Rite of Spring by Stravinsky, and Daphnis and Chloe by Ravel. I also love commissioning composers, and I commissioned Michael Dougherty when I heard his small chamber orchestra work tell my fortune. The second movement is called Crystal, and I asked him to write it for alto flute, flute, and piano. And here it is. It's called Crystal, and it's on my CD, American Art, with flutists Ichun Chen and pianist Christopher Harding. I like to incorporate the three main auxiliary instruments, the piccolo, the alto flute, and the bass flute, into my studio teaching by prescribing repertoire and giving the student the instrument. Yes, the instrument. Sometimes it's the first time a student has ever held an alto or a bass flute. It's not a surprise when a student who's matriculating into the University of Michigan writes to me and asks, do I have to play the piccolo? I don't own one. Well, it's not a priority until it becomes one. 
the piccolo is a high priority in the world of orchestra and flute choirs and competition in our classical music field. Pay attention to it if you're contemplating playing the flute. So I can initiate the conversation or quite often the student is quite forthcoming about the desire to play the instrument. There will be a lot of piccolo music that will be introduced. I like the story of composer and blue flute alum Nina Shaker. Although at times she was only having a lesson every other week because she was a composition major, she was still learning complicated flute and piccolo sonatas alongside her deep commitment to her degree in composition. So here are some excerpts we are going to learn in lessons and in studio classes for the piccolo and the alto flute. So I mentioned three excerpts for the alto flute earlier. The Planets by Holst, Rite of Spring by Stravinsky, and Daphnis and Chloe by Ravel. But also practice the mainstream repertoire on the alto flute to hear it differently in a different key. For aspiring piccoloists, you should dive immediately into the Vivaldi Piccolo Concertos, especially C major, RV443. And try John Phillips Sousa's Stars and Stripes Forever, both in D major and E flat. Play excerpts like Beethoven 9, Tchaikovsky 4, Ravel Mother Goose Suite, Piano Concerto in G, the two overtures by Rossini, Semiramide and La Gazza Ladra. Shostakovich, Symphony No. 6 and 9. Bartok, Concerto for Orchestra. I could go on and on. And don't leave out those additional opera piccolo excerpts in your studies. Now, let's listen to two people who have each have a story about finding their voice on the piccolo. First, we'll hear from Cynthia Myers in the Boston Symphony. Her story will give you a glimpse into her journey that was beautifully challenging. First off, I want to thank Amy for inviting me to participate in this great discussion about taking the fear out of learning auxiliary instruments. As performing flutists, it's important that we learn how to become competent players on particularly the piccolo, but also alto flute. And I've even had to play bass flute during my time in the pops. Learning to embrace these instruments not only opens more opportunities for us in the music world, but I believe makes us better musicians in the long run. I think that for many of us, the fear of tackling an auxiliary instrument, especially the piccolo, has to do with the unknown. We know what is similar between the instruments, but it's the differences that can actually paralyze us. That and the fact that on the piccolo, you really can't hide. For me, I learned through my teacher, William Hebert, who was the piccolo player in the Cleveland Orchestra, that it was the challenge of those differences that actually made it fun. He literally demystified the piccolo for me and encouraged me to play it like a little flute. In other words, a musical instrument with a very special and unique voice. My journey toward the piccolo was one that I never thought I would take. Like a lot of you, I started learning the flute in my public school band program in a small town, Somerset, Pennsylvania. When I got to high school, I was given the option to play piccolo in the marching band, which to me made so much more sense because you could actually hear it. I was assigned to play in my junior year in high school in the Pennsylvania District Band Festival and found that I actually enjoyed it, but I never really gave it another, another thought after that. 
But in college and grad school, I only played it when I was assigned. We didn't study it. No one really wanted to do it. We were all training to be principal flutists. I bought a okay piccolo while I was in college. It was a silver cylinder bore Hanes that was made in 1923. My teacher at the time was Ethan Stang, who's the piccolo player with the Pittsburgh Symphony, and he he realized how flat it was. So he actually sawed off the end of the head joint to bring it up to pitch. They were actually really beautiful instruments, but because of, of the, the, um, the cylinder bore, the scale was a mess and all over the place. That was my main instrument until after I graduated with my master's degree. So I went to CIM for grad school and I worked with Jeffrey Kaner. At the time, again, my whole focus was getting a flute job. I took every audition that happened during those two years and I ended up playing second flute in the Canton Symphony and then a year later won the principal flute in that orchestra. And I also won second flute in Akron Symphony during that time. But when I left school, there weren't many auditions, and the first one that came up was Piccolo in the North Carolina Symphony. By this point, I had purchased a wooden Hanes, so at least I had an instrument that I could audition on. I talked to Jeff about my plan, and he wisely sent me to Bill Hebert. And I remember the first time I heard him in the Cleveland Orchestra, I was so mesmerized by how he sounded. And I remember the program. It was Ravel Mother Goose, Shostakovich Cello Concerto with Yo-Yo Ma and Daphnis. And I was sitting in the very last row of Severance Hall. And I could not get over the most, he had the most beautiful, compelling sound. And the contribution to the orchestra was so important. So with Jeff's blessing, I called Bill and asked for a lesson. Um, When I got there, he asked me what I expected to get from this lesson. And I said I needed to learn how to play the piccolo to take this audition. His response was, I can't tell you that in one lesson. What else do you need to know? (laughs) I said, well, can you get me through the audition? Which he agreed to do. Um, And I enjoyed the lesson so much, went to the audition and made the finals. And so that kind of said something to me, hmm, maybe maybe there's something here that I need to pursue. So after that, I studied piccolo with him for the two years that I was out of school. And as I said earlier, what I truly fell in love with was figuring out the different challenges between the piccolo and the flute. The placement on the face is different. The aperture size is smaller, especially in the upper register. Um, And then there are the alternate fingerings, which were life-changing for me. But I also realized the the similarities. My throat had to stay relaxed and open. My jaw had to stay relaxed and loose just like on the flute. Air needed to be well-supported, just like on the flute. And my sound had to spin, which is exactly the way I played the flute. So now that I felt like I was a decent piccolo player and a decent flutist, I had so many more options open to me in the audition world, and I took every audition that happened. Um, As passionate as I was about learning the piccolo, it turned out that my first job was indeed a principal flute job in Omaha, which I won in 1988. I stayed there for nine years and I loved it. I met my husband there, who was the principal cellist. My oldest son was born there. But I would joke with my colleagues that I was a closet piccolo player. I had made the finals in piccolo auditions in Cleveland, Cincinnati, National Symphony, Pittsburgh, Boston. And I was still taking auditions, both on flute and piccolo. But at this point now, it was not only just me I had to think about. I was also a mom and I had my husband in his career to think about as well. And so we had to think more about which auditions we would take. 
Because if one of us won a job, it would directly impact the other's career. And in all honesty, we were really happy in Omaha. It was a good orchestra, it was a good city, and we had good friends. But when Houston Piccolo opened, my husband encouraged me to try. So I took the audition in the spring of 96. I played a trial week in September of that year, and I was hired. What I realized most about making the transition to being a full-time piccolo player was how much my principal flute experience had helped me. Since the piccolo really has no place to hide in the orchestra, you really need to be able to adopt a soloist mentality. Bill Hebert used to say it took a little bit of an extrovert to actually play the instrument, which I kind of chuckle about now, looking back. But I also realized how much my piccolo playing benefited my flute playing. And I enjoyed and still enjoy in Boston the opportunity to play great chamber music on both instruments. I also have to keep up my flute chops because I move over to play second flute quite a bit. Um, and it's important to me to be able to keep a high level of playing on, on flute. I enjoy playing it, I love playing it, and I certainly love chamber music. So I don't want to let that go. Piccolo certainly has not um, diminished that experience at all for me. So the move to Boston was one that was unexpected. We were in Houston for nine years, and by this point I had two kids. I was vice president of the PTA. My husband was associate principal cello of the opera and the ballet, so we were settled. We were really not planning on moving. When I uh, when the audition for Boston happened in 2006, a friend of mine encouraged me to go as I had made the final 16 years earlier. At this point, I was 43. I was settled in my job, definitely not in audition shape, but I uh, decided it was worth it, if for no other reason but to play in that beautiful hall just one more time. So I found the time to get back in audition mode, and I went to the audition and ended up having a good day. Um... I felt very privileged and honored to have won the job, and I've been here for 15 seasons now. I have an amazing section, and every day that I play with them really is a privilege. So I would encourage all of you who are listening to this to embrace learning the piccolo, embrace learning the alto flute. Um, it opens up a whole different world of different music, different repertoire, it really enhances your flute playing. And it, most importantly, I think, opens up so many opportunities for performance that would otherwise, otherwise be closed if we didn't pick up those instruments and try. So I would encourage you all, especially to embrace learning this wonderful little flute it has been my friend for a very long time. It has a very special voice and an important place in the orchestral literature. So enjoy it, and most of all, have fun. Thanks again, Amy. In between listening to my guests, I'd like to geek out just a little bit about their instruments. Let's get the stories about the piccolo. Cynthia wrote this about her piccolo. Most of the time I play on Powell number 7966, but with various head joints, either the original head or a Keefe modern cut, as well as a Keefe classic cut. I also recently bought a Keefe with a gold tenon, which I'm working on breaking in. 
but the piccolo that I love the most belonged to my teacher. It is paddle number 296, and it was made in 1937 for George Madsen, who was the piccolo player of the Boston Symphony at that time. Bill bought it in 1965 on the recommendation of his teacher, James Papatsakis, who at that time was the second flutist in the orchestra and knew that George was selling the piccolo upon his retirement. Bill played it in the Cleveland Orchestra until he retired. I bought it from Martha Ahrens, the former second flutist in Cleveland, about 10 years ago. In addition to that history, the most interesting thing about it is it was the first all-wooden instrument that Vern Q. Powell ever made after starting his own company after he left Haynes. Erica Peel says about her piccolo in the Philadelphia Orchestra, I play a Homig 650-2 and switch between that and my Manka head joint in the orchestra. In all honesty, Amy, I'm one of those people who didn't really choose the piccolo. Um, The piccolo definitely chose me. Um, I didn't ever really gravitate towards the instrument. I think because its natural qualities of, um, you know, standing out and being heard are sort of the opposite of my innate qualities as a person. I'm I'm fairly shy. The spotlight, uh, so to speak, makes me uncomfortable. And I am generally a big fan of blending in. So the instrument really terrified me for many, many years. And even after I won my first job, which was an assistant principal and piccolo position, during which I didn't play very much piccolo, uh, I vividly remember the feeling of sheer panic every time I brought the instrument to my face. So when you ask what was appealing about it, uh, I have to say not much to begin with. Um, My teacher through high school was Marianne Archer, who was the piccolo player of the Met Opera Orchestra at the time. And she, of course, always stressed the importance of learning the piccolo, but as a typical high school student, I was reluctant to really listen. Uh, But after school, when I was taking auditions, I consistently advanced in the piccolo auditions. So I guess what was ultimately appealing to me was having a job. I knew I wanted to play in an orchestra, but having a piccolo position was not on my radar at all. And to be honest, I don't even remember playing much piccolo in ensembles in college. I know we rotated quite a bit, uh, and I was never particularly excited about playing the piccolo parts, even if they were great parts. Um, I was just scared of the thing. It was like a necessary evil, which I know so, so many flutists see it as, and I feel that, um, you know, it's very understandable. But when I got out of school, and I imagine this is the case for many people, I took all of the auditions. Um, I'm sure many can relate to just wanting a job, right? So I was not picky, and I really just needed to practice the skill of audition taking, of getting, you know, that level of consistency and having the assurance and the certitude that I could do it. So I took all of them, and a pattern started to show itself. It was um, pretty clear that despite all of my internal objection and insecurities, I was standing out uh, on the piccolo in a way that I wasn't on the flute. And at some point when it became clear that the universe was sort of leading me in a certain direction, I listened and I began putting the time into really learning the instrument. 
and developing a relationship to it, like how we all do with the flute. And that's when I began to really love it, which brings me to my current um, feeling about the piccolo, which is that it's just misunderstood. Uh, You know, we bring all of these preconceived notions to the instrument and treat it like it's a necessity, it's something we have to learn. And I think that's a mindset and an approach that can get us into some trouble. So, you know, once I accepted that I was going to be a piccolo player and really treated it as uh, its own instrument, um, I was determined to be the kind of piccolo player that shifted people's perception of the instrument. You know, I didn't want to be the the shrieking twig or, uh, you know, constantly bird calling. I, I didn't want to further this idea that the instrument is obnoxious or offensive Um you know, if this was going to be something I was doing, I wanted to prove its beauty and its place as an instrument capable of creating stunning music. And that's still sort of my my um, mission. And I imagine it always will be. I imagine that for so many of us, our teaching reflects our personal journey, right? So my journey included quite a bit of what I I suppose is typically viewed as failure, you know, many, many auditions in which I did not win or even advance. Um, But through all of that, I began to develop um, a sort of method, you know, a regimen of thoughtful, intentional practice, um, experimentation, curiosity, and these things, these ways of approaching the instrument and music in general really brought me to where I am. So these are the qualities that I now bring to my teaching. Um, I also recognize how much stress and fear and tension I was bringing to the instrument and how that hindered me for so long, for too long. So I also think it's incredibly important to come to the piccolo and treat the piccolo like any instrument in the most natural and relaxed and human way possible. To think of it like, you know, speaking through the instrument. Yes, it might be a finicky instrument and it might require some extra love and attention, but it's still just a vehicle for your voice. Think back to when we were first learning the flute. I don't know about y'all, but I have vivid memories of uh, struggling and learning to play in the high register, for instance, and my my older brother saying, can't you play any quieter up there? And responding with a, nope, sorry, it's it's just impossible. Because at the time, it, it was impossible. Um, I hadn't learned how to control the sound or control my air. And although the piccolo is very similar to the flute, it feels very different to play. So as I stressed to my piccolo class full of flute majors at Peabody, you know, put it to your face consistently, even if it's just 10 minutes a day, because playing the piccolo is like uh, putting a magnifying glass on your flute playing and all of the issues that, that you can kind of get away with in your flute playing or not notice or hear are suddenly a big problem on the piccolo because it's a fairly unforgiving instrument. So I found that through our piccolo class, we make these uh, connections between what we're working on in their piccolo playing, whether it be 
uh, unnecessary or misplaced uh, tension, you know, articulation, uh, vibrato, uh, flexibility, and we see how it translates to the struggles they have in their flute playing. You know, I've heard the myth uh, that playing and working on the piccolo too much can have a negative impact on your flute playing. But I'm a firm believer that if you are approaching the piccolo in the right way, um, you know, without increasing tension, then working on the piccolo will in fact benefit your flute playing. This is what a bass flute sounds like. And so many people haven't even heard of a bass flute. It does look a little bit like a piece of plumbing, and it even comes with a, a thumb support that you have to screw into the instrument. It's a little complicated, and it has a curved head joint. Here I am playing Lowell Lieberman's eight pieces, and I chose to play number three on the bass flute. Thank you so much to piccoloists, Cynthia Myers from the Boston Symphony and Erica Peel from the Philadelphia Orchestra for being on Porter Flute Pod and telling their stories about how the piccolo found them. You can join us next time on Porter Flute Pod. It's Ask Amy, Etude Edition. You can find more about me at amyporter.com or porterflute.com. And on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook, I'm Porter Flute. Thanks for being here. I'm so grateful for you.